one of the real benefits of CDA 230 is it removes platforms from being in between kind of a rock and a hard place. Without CDA 230, basically platforms have one of two choices. Either you take the do not moderate at all approach, which means that you'll see everything in your news feed with little recourse on the part of the platform because we just don't moderate at all. We've told you this is a digital wild west. Or platforms then constantly have to screen every single post before approving it for the fear of what if something slips through. So with CDA 230, it kind of allows this good faith effort to make the right content moderation decisions and to allow different platforms to have different norms. Hi, everyone. Producer Dallas here. Welcome back to the Mercatus Policy Download. We're back to bring you a special episode on Section 230, or as one of our guests today put it, the 26 words that created the internet. This law paved the way for the explosion of Facebook, YouTube, and numerous other internet companies by protecting them from being held liable for what users say and do on their platforms. This also allowed each platform the freedom to develop its own content moderation standards. But as these platforms have grown larger and central to public discourse, some are worried that Section 230 gives tech companies far too much influence in who can say what. So is 230 due for a reform? And if so, how? Mercatus scholar Brian Knight leads the discussion on the show today. And be sure to stick around later for what's on tap with Kate Delanoy. Thanks and enjoy the show. Greetings. You're listening to a very special edition of the Mercatus Policy Download. My name is Brian Knight. I'm a senior research fellow here, and we're going to be talking about Platform Immunity and Communications Decency Act 230, or as one of our guests put it, the 26 words that created the internet. However, this provision is not without controversy, and we're going to dig into why. Joining me is Jeff Kossoff, Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity Law at the United States Naval Academy, Cyber Science Department, and the author of The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Jennifer Huddleston, a research fellow here at Mercatus, whose research involves technology, law, and policy. Thanks for having me today, Brian. And joined on the phone from uh, beautiful Michigan is Adam Kandu, a professor of law and the director of the Intellectual Property, Information, and Communications Law Program at Michigan State University. Glad to be here. So let's start, you know, let's lay a, a predicate here for the, you know, three listeners who don't know. What is the Communications Decency Act Section 230? Jeff, you wrote the book. So to understand what Section 230 is, you have to go back a little bit before Congress passed the law in 1996. And there were a series of cases involving primarily bookstores and newsstands uh, that sold obscene materials. And uh, there were criminal ordinances that sought to hold them liable. And the rule that developed out of these cases was that the booksellers could be liable only if they knew or should have known, if they had some sort of element of scienter. And that worked pretty well for the next 30 years or so until we got into these early online services, these things that my students have no idea what I'm talking about, CompuServe and Prodigy. And they're really connecting people at a larger scale to each other and to what would become the internet. And they had very different business models. CompuServe allowed third parties to post basically whatever they wanted. And Prodigy had a lot of moderation policies and moderators. And they were both sued in the early 90s for defamation based on third party content. And uh, CompuServe's case was dismissed because the judge said, you're like a bookstore you didn't know there was no reason for you to have known of this uh, allegedly defamatory content. But Prodigy was held to the standard of a publisher, of a newspaper, because what the judge said in that case was you review content, you you have reserved the right to delete content, you have moderators, you're more like a letters to the editor page. So that's that was sort of lurking in the background in 1995 when Congress is debating this Telecommunications Act. And that's when Section 230 ends up being proposed. Uh, it was not called the Communications Decency Act at the time. Uh, that was actually a separate Senate proposal that uh, restricted the transmission of indecent material to uh, over the Internet because there was concern about children being harmed by online pornography. The House, uh, Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, had a very different view. They uh, Section 230 states, uh, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So those are the 26 words. And 
There are also additional provisions, which we might get to later when we talk about the Holly Bill, that talk about providing immunity for good faith efforts to to restrict access to remove objectionable content, lewd and lascivious content. But the idea between behind Section 230 was this is a nascent technology. Um, we f- have really two goals. First is to allow the growth of this new industry with potential. Uh, but also we want to, rather than have the government decide what content can and can't be online, we want to have this theory of user empowerment, basically allowing platforms to make these decisions about what their users want, what kind of moderation practices their users want. So um, both uh, the indecency law and Section 230 get very quietly, or really Section 230 was very quietly added to the Telecom Act, barely any coverage of it. Then the indecency law gets struck down the next year by uh, the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. And so what remains of the Communications Decency Act is Section 230. From the sense of it, and having read your book, and you, you alluded to this here, but just sort of flesh it out a bit, it seems like there were two broad justifications for CDA 230, a practical one and a normative one. Mm-hmm. The normative one is, Look, if you didn't write that, just like we don't blame the car for the drunk driver, we shouldn't blame the platform for its misuse by you know either. And then the the practical argument is we want the benefits of of what the internet can provide, but if we impose liability, it just isn't going to work. So we need to we need to grant this immunization in order to obtain these benefits. Is that is that fair? It is, yeah. So I mean, I I, I think the and I've I've gone through every bit of debate that there was, which was not very much in Congress. I've spoken with everyone who was involved, and that was the general intent. I would say, I mean, in for all transparency, probably most people in Congress didn't know what this was when they were passing this um, because everyone, I mean, it's so antiquated. Everyone was focused on like 271 approval and competition between local and long distance phone companies, something else my students probably don't know what I'm talking about when I mention it. Uh, And this section 230, I mean, I looked for all the news coverage and there was barely any of it. And the news coverage that there was made no mention of the fact that it's going to block lawsuits against (laughs) internet companies. It was more about it won't let the FCC regulate, which is true, but that wasn't really the point of it. So, all right. So the the law gets passed and, you know, it's sunshine and lollipops for everyone, right? Well, what happens then, right? So so no, nobody really quite knew what to do, what, what these provisions were that because they were so overlooked, um, it really would take another year until they were first tested in court. Uh, and that would be the Zarin case. And the Zarin case involved a man named Ken Zarin who suddenly started getting phone calls at his Seattle home more frequently, very angry phone calls. And he found out that someone had posted these incredibly horrible ads for T-shirts mocking the Oklahoma City bombing six days after the Oklahoma City bombing. It spread around. A DJ in Oklahoma City read it. Uh, he repeatedly called AOL, and AOL took some steps, but they delayed, They and the ads kept coming back up. And frankly, AOL was totally unequipped to deal with this. Uh, so he sues AOL for negligent distribution of defamatory content. And AOL, hi- to its credit, hires an amazing lawyer named Pat Carone, who's at Wilmer. And Pat could have made the First Amendment argument, but that wouldn't really work because, remember, if you know or should have known – of illegal or defamatory content, then you can be held liable. Uh, And AOL had gotten repeated calls, uh, lawyer letters, all sorts of things, and they still left it up. So that argument wouldn't really work. So Pat knew about Section 230, and he thought, let's just make this argument. And this is a stronger argument. Uh, There were some skeptics, but he made the argument. It goes up to the, the case gets dismissed by Judge Ellis, who presided over the Manafort trial. And then it goes up to the Fourth Circuit, and uh, it's a fairly conservative panel. The Fourth Circuit at the time was pretty conservative, but J. Harvey Wilkinson uh, is the chief judge, and he's on the panel. And one thing about him is he is a former newspaper editor. So his decisions have a very strong pro-free speech streak to them. So what he says is by saying that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker – that means there is not any liability because the other way to read that would be that there still would be this distributor liability, that you still could hold all online services liable if they get notice. But because Judge Wilkinson is the first judge and he's an appellate judge to 
issue a ruling under this, that basically becomes the precedent, even though it's only binding in the Fourth Circuit. Um, that really goes largely unquestioned after that because he was the first appellate judge to rule on it. So, Jennifer, what are the benefits of 230? Like, why, why, do, we ha- why do we have this thing and, and what are we getting out of it? With 230, what you're getting out of it is a huge array of different content moderation strategies and a huge growth in third-party generated content online, which is not just – a lot of times I think we hear Section 230 talked about as the social media law or the big tech law, and we kind of hear it talked about in terms of Facebook or YouTube or various other big platforms, but it also is a law that really allowed – growth on the internet in terms of a communications mechanism and in terms of allowing individuals to share different ideas. So not only does this law apply to content moderators like large social media platforms, but it also applies to, say, a newspaper that is has a comment section and is engaging in moderating the comments on different news stories that may or may not be controversial. It applies to various other intermediaries that are part of the transactions um, of the internet ecosystem and allows each of those intermediaries to make their own choices when it comes to the content moderation decision. So ideally, you have this real flourishing, both in terms of acceptance of this kind of third-party content, which is what a lot of us really go to the internet for these days, And at the same time, various standards for different communities that fit different people's own choices. But of course, this this law is is, and seems to have become more controversial over time. So, I mean, Adam, I I know you've expressed some some skepticism about it. So what what are the downsides? Yeah. And um, if if I could, I I would just um, maybe uh, take issue with some of the characterizations of Section 230 and the way it fits into the history of um, communications regulation. You know, I, I think that people have to start out realizing the extraordinary gift of immunity uh, that Section 230 is, especially when combined with uh, the Zoran decision. The issue of distributor and publisher liability is ancient. It doesn't just doesn't go back to a few bookstores. It goes back hundreds of years. And, you know, the rules that are developed under common law is that if you publish something in your newspaper, you're liable. You may not be liable. Necess- well, you will be liable as a publisher. If something's in your bookstore and you know about it, and you know it's libelous, you're liable as a distributor. It's a higher standard of liability. 230 did two things. One, it imported this notion of distributor liability uh, to the Internet, which was a good thing because then people could write things on people on on platforms and the platform owners wouldn't be liable for the third party content. But it's an extraordinary gift in that I'll give you one example. So let's say you write a comment in a in a newspaper online comment under 230. There's the newspaper has no liability whatsoever. However, if that same comment is published in the newspaper, in the letter section, then the newspaper does have liability. So it does create this special standard for the Internet. Second, and I have real concerns about it as well, is that you see this in this discussion, is that Section 230C1 is what gives the sort of special distributor liability gift to the Internet platforms. Uh, But C2 is the one that deals with moderation. And the whole point of the Prodigy decision was that if you're going to have a platform that takes it upon itself to moderate its content, then it becomes a publisher. It's responsible for the statements there because it has its imprimatur, it has its views, it has its view of the world based on those comments. And if they want liability for that, it was only for very specific types of reasons for editing and moderating that liability immunity was extended under C2. So what we have is essentially a statute that was extraordinary in its gift of uh, immunity to platforms in a time when there were no you know, giant social media monopolies who were controlling public discourse um, and allowed for the the immunized moderate moderation of common only for very specific issues, mostly having to do with pornography. And so what has it evolved into is essentially a get out of jail, a free card for um, the online, you know, monopolist tech platforms. And that's a real problem. Let me 
play devil's advocate here for a little bit and just sort of throw, build on what some of what Adam said, just throw out some arguments as to why C2, CDA 230 may be unjust. I mean, yeah, so I've already mentioned the, the concept that it privileges internet platforms over more traditional platforms, even if they're functionally equivalent or comparable. It seems, I guess another one would be, does CDA 230 encourage bad or at least suboptimal behavior by platforms, right? If relieved of potential liability, does it discourage platforms from doing what we what they should probably be doing or what we would like them to do? I'm going to jump on that second question first. And I actually think part of one of the real benefits of CDA 230 is it removes platforms from being in between kind of a rock and a hard place. Without CDA 230, basically platforms have one of two choices. Either you take the do not moderate at all approach, which means that you'll see everything in your news feed from cat pictures to pornography to hate speech with little recourse on the part of the platform because we just don't moderate at all. We've told you this is a, a digital wild west when you enter in here, enter at your own risk. Or platforms then constantly have to screen every single post before approving it for the fear of what if something slips through. So with CDA 230, it kind of allows this good faith effort to make the right content moderation decisions and to allow different platforms to have different norms. I'd actually just like to respond to something Adam had said about the distributor uh, concept and about C1, which I think is a totally valid and legitimate reading of it. Uh, And that was actually much of my reading going into the two years I spent reporting and researching the book. And the one thing I would say is because when you look at it, it really could be read two different ways. It could be read to say it's just C1 just defaults to distributor liability for all platforms. And that would make total sense um, because the it gets to a technical issue of whether a distributor is a separate animal for the law from a publisher, and et cetera. But when and I thought, you know, maybe maybe Zarin got it wrong. And when I spoke with Cox and Wyden and some of the other former members of Congress who were involved in it, as well as people who helped write it, I got the clear impression that for at least them, they had this uh, this very strong absolute immunity in mind. Now, there's a normative question of whether that's good or bad, and I definitely take a lot of Adam's points, and he's actually written quite. Uh, nicely on this uh, of, you know, is this a policy that we want to have in the future? And that's really, I, I mean, I I testified in Congress uh, in 2017 in support of a sex trafficking carve out to, to Section 230. But I would say that we have to separate out, uh, at, at least what my reporting found was that, no, they, they kind of, at least the people who were in the know, they actually knew that it was going to be this broad. Whether the other 400 members of Congress knew, that's a different story. But at least for them, this is kind of at least the the breadth of the immunity is what they intended. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think your your book is definitive as far as the history of 230. But it really is a situation of, you know, changed world, changed facts. You know, as you pointed out, if you ask your students, what's AOL, what's Prodigy, they look at you blankly. And what I fear and what I, you know, what motivates a lot of my concern is that a law that was built for a competitive internet is now being used for an internet that is really dominated by a few large firms that are able to sort of put their finger on the fulcrum of the public discourse. And so that's my concern. And, and I, I would say that's a legitimate concern because, I mean, the, the idea, again, behind the whole theory of Section 230 is user empowerment, that Platforms will set the rules and the users will walk if they don't like the rules that the platform set. And in theory, that's great. And I'm at the Mercatus Center. We like free markets, everything. But I mean, I even as someone who has defended Section 230, it does give me pause when I think, well, can you walk away from Facebook? Can you walk away from Twitter? I think you absolutely can. And people do every single day. You can survive without Facebook just fine. And I would point out that we've, you know, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, which I I do remember the MySpace and the, the, (laughs) I actually remember AOL. (laughs) So some of your students may too. AIM was big. Um, But this idea that we constantly see new innovations and we think that the existing giants can never be toppled only to see things happen again and again. The headlines of can Nokia ever be caught? Did Yahoo win the search wars? Some say they're the next AOL. Is MySpace a natural monopoly? 
But the so the question is, it's not that you know undoubtedly you know AT and T the AT and T monopoly has been succeeded by the Facebook monopoly. But the question is that I think. Even, you know, I'm generally very, very open to free markets. But the question is, is it okay for Zuckerberg to essentially censor speech according to his personal preferences and then be able to, you know, look for sucker to Section 230? I have problems with that. Well, one of the benefits of Section 230, or I believe, you know, you could argue definitely one of the ideas behind it was that you have very low barriers to entry, very low barriers to creating a new platform. If one platform you feel has a very liberal political slant, there's not really anything to stop you from going and creating the same platform with a very conservative political slant if you see there's a market there. But but that's sort of like saying, well, you know, let's you know create your own phone phone company. Um, you know, I mean, we can have this argument. The argument's going for you know decades in regulatory policy. Um, you know, the issues of network effects and things like that, tipping points. I don't know the great wisdom to definitively say one way or the other, but certainly even the defenders of, of markets would have to have a little concern that these forces of, of network effects um, would, in fact, make that sort of strategy impossible. And then, you know, there is evidence for that, which is Gab. So, I mean, who wants to go on Gab? That's, that's, I mean, I never have. It sounds horrible. We're touching on something here, and I, so I want to ba- back up for a second and, and say something and get the group to respond to it. It seems like there are two two sort of branches of argument against 230 as it is currently written. One that we've already kind of gotten into is the inverse of the practical argument. You know, we want we want the internet to blossom, so we will grant this immunity. Oh crap, the internet has blossomed. Let's <laughs> peel it. But you know, it's, it Frankenstein's monster has gone away from us. Let's peel it back. The other argument is much more direct, which is 230 is immunizing platforms from conduct they should not be immu- immunized for. Because for whatever reason, the normative argument that applied in the beginning no longer applies. And it seems to me that depending on which side, which plank of those, which two you think is more apt, is going to dictate, to the extent you think any of them apply, is going to dictate which type of reform you want to pursue. Curious what your guys' thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you see these competing criticisms playing out in Congress where you have sort of the Ted Cruz argument that – they're moderating too much and that they're censoring viewpoints. And then you have the Nancy Pelosi argument that they're not moderating enough. And so at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, what do you want us to do? And I think that almost was, I I mean, that, that that's almost what some of the tech companies are saying. Okay, well, what's the right outcome here? And I mean, what I'll say is moderation is really hard. I've spent a lot of time looking at this and when you look at one thing, I mean, I, I've done exercises looking at one content and comparing it to a policy. Is it hate speech? Is it legitimate political discourse? And then is it graphic violence? Is it a documentation of current events? And then you multiply that by the rapid fire barrage of this. And I mean, not to mention the labor conditions of people who are having to do the moderation. This is hard. There is not an easy way to moderate content. So you have you have all of these things lurking in the background of something that's already almost impossible and then sort of framing the debate and saying, well, let's do this or that to Section 230. And I, I, I mean, I can say after spending two years writing this book, I have no idea. What, I mean, I mean, I, I think that any changes need to be made very deliberately. And I get really concerned when everyone has the magic solution after spending a few minutes on Wikipedia and they'll tweet at me. Um, and that's, and, and but, but I, I think this is a really, really tough problem. I would add to, I think some of what even this conversation shows is how quickly conversations about one specific issue in tech policy all get kind of muddled together into the interaction between different elements. So here we are talking about CDA 230. And we're also, though, have already kind of had a bit of a conversation about antitrust. It's easy for people to bring in privacy to content moderation conversations, even though they're they're two very separate issues. And so particularly when we're looking at these policy issues, I think oftentimes it's really good both to take a step back and look at what would changing that specific policy potentially do and why, what role does that specific policy do? And is that the best tool for the solution that you're trying to achieve? So let me put on my devil's advocate horns. 
again and just say argue that well look if you look at the some of these big platforms like a Facebook their product maybe not in a technical economic two-sided market sense but in a in a layperson sense their product is other people's content right and so if they are basically largely immune from like what would be the equivalent of a product liability suit and so when you give an industry or you give a player in an industry that type of advantage then they are going to be potentially bigger than they would be otherwise. And so we, you know, I mean, Senator Hawley, who we will briefly, we'll briefly discuss the, the bill he dropped recently, but, you know, his broader critique of Silicon Valley talks about things like that the economy is distorted by the amount of time and attention and effort and money that goes into the Facebooks of the world. And one could make an argument that part of that is because they face a better regulatory environment than other industries who maybe you know and if absent this this regulatory grant maybe they couldn't grow so fast because they'd be having to do this moderation because they'd be accountable on the basis of traditional common law principles for their actions is that completely nuts or that's a, a really a very clever idea i never really thought of it that way um but you're right um and in the sense that you know what other platform could collect all of that content without liability to itself and you know be sort of infinitely interesting to infinitely number of people um now i think that's a good thing not a bad thing but you're right it, it's it's an advantage that newspapers and television just doesn't have but my, my question i guess back to you is okay so what let's say you've created this monster or, or genie or whatever you want to call it um what's the next step i mean do you say okay here's your great gift and you know we're all very happy about it or is there some sort of regulatory um sequel and i i as i suspect well i'm on the latter side but i guess that's the question that's where your question would lead yeah i mean i i so i think a lot of the practices of the large online platforms and i'll say that there's more than just three or four platforms. <laughs> There's a lot of platforms, um, but some some of them, and particularly the larger ones, have I, I'm deeply concerned, sometimes appalled by some of the things that they do, and much of it, the things I'm most concerned about, have nothing to do with Section 230. So, I mean, the privacy practices, and frankly, even some of the security practices of some of the platforms are horrifying. I mean, they meant money from what they really make money from is people's data. But that's not Section 230. And I think we need to separate that out. I do the other area where I do a lot of research is cybersecurity law. And I get so frustrated when I see a headline saying some so-and-so proposes comprehensive cybersecurity bill and it just has to do with breach notification. And I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. <laughs> we need to we we need to be focused here. And so I, I think what we have to say is, okay, what are we specifically concerned about? Are we concerned about, for example, the prospect of platforms censoring certain political viewpoints or being biased against them? Okay, how is that related to Section 230? And if we were to repeal Section 230, would that make it any better? I would posit that it would probably make it worse. Um, I, I think there would be either the two the two options if you got rid of Section 230 for that sort of spe speech would be, you know, you're not going to moderate at all and then just take down a content when you get a complaint or because you don't want to risk the prodigy case reoccurring and it was a bad case, so it might not. Or you just don't allow third-party content. Um, because I think our entire system is built on Section 230. I mean, I, we, we've built all of these industries on it. So I think that there could be nuanced proposals to change Section 230 that I, that I think would not do as much harm and could even do some good. But I think that it's very different than just saying, let's get rid of Section 230 altogether, which is really what I hear a lot in the popular press. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that part of it is – some you know this this nascent notion that or sense that people are getting that something's going to miss something's going to awry we're not comfortable where things are and we need a stick to we we need to pick up a stick and two thirty is a stick and let's grab it versus I, I think you could make a more nuanced argument in you know like, to your point about like sex trafficking right that is that's clearly a bad thing and you could make an argument that a targeted modification of the law would address that issue without 
having a lot of collateral damage. I think it's also important to point out some of the things that Section 230 doesn't cover, because one of the the pushbacks a lot of scholars particularly had with SESTA-FOSTA, which was the sex trafficking carve-out Jeff was mentioning earlier, was that it was redundant, that Section 230 already does not cover federal crimes, including sex trafficking. And so you were potentially... It, there were existing tools out there to solve this problem instead of passing another law that was broader and could potentially raise some concerns about legitimate speech and also potentially start a kind of cascade of different carve outs to 230 where maybe you don't you, you repeal it by a thousand paper cups cuts instead of one swift cutoff. Yeah. Yeah. Could I say some, something a little heterodox? And, sure. And I'm. I'm, I'm I'd be more than glad to, you know, be corrected with with great vehemence and 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 disgust. I guess one thing I'd ask is, do we really need mediation at all of of social media? The assumption is that we somehow we we will we do. Um, one, you know, it's the it has become the public forum in many ways. Most the amount of information and particularly news that people get is, is from Facebook and from Twitter is disproportionate. It's probably the most important force in public discourse. And so I don't want a corporation to decide what people are listening to or, or reading. And if people have trouble with what they hear, I don't understand why they just don't block the people they don't want to listen to. And why why aren't our the internet firms in the business of giving individuals the sort of knowledge that they do um, and help them block and sort of create their worlds in more effective ways? Um, it seems to me that would be the most you know efficient, and I'll use that word in sort of more rigorous economic terms approach, and also most normatively acceptable. So, are you suggesting no moderation at all? Yeah, and giving individuals the tools. So you know, you don't want to, you don't like somebody, block him, and you know, you can block people like him, and, and you can be like you don't want to talk to anyone or or have friends suggested to you who are a political party or things like that. But uh, one thing that's not defined is, is what is the harm from you know people on the internet talking to themselves about things that you don't like i mean what is social media but a sequence of private networks where you don't have to engage in conversations that you don't want to be part of yeah i mean i i think theoretically there's some that that seems theoretically like the cleanest option i what i'd i'd encourage you to read last week uh casey newton had an article in the verge a lot of it was about the labor conditions of moderators for social media platforms but part of it which i think should be required reading is the content that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And this isn't just like a few people making remarks that might offend people. This is just this barrage of child pornography and drugs and, I mean, propaganda that really is trying to destabilize regimes, all sorts of things that come at you so quickly that I, I think maybe the sort of no moderation solution would not have been as harmful 20 years ago. But I think now, given how weaponized social media is, I mean, you think about things like revenge pornography, all, all sorts of things. I mean, I I criticize Section 230, but I criticize it from the fact that there's not a, the, or the internet under Section 230 that I don't think the platforms are necessarily doing enough moderation just because there's so much out there. And I, I mean, I definitely see the the appeal of having this sort of open square, but just given what how it's being used right now, I'm I'm not sure if practically that would be possible. I would just add, I think that that's part of why most platforms choose to moderate is just it's not a user experience that many of us would want. And there are platforms out there where there are very, very light moderation and, and very, very broad reaching standards on what is and isn't allowed. And most people don't want to go to those platforms. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I could just say one thing, that the, the, there are two issues that have to be distinguished. One is user experience. And one, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I mean, I have a Facebook feed. I don't really like it that much, but I do it sometimes. And I've never seen any child pornography or, you know, anything pro um, North Korea on it um, because I choose who I have friend, friends with. So if we want to... If we're worried about um, user experience, it seems to me that it's not that hard to create an environment that you, you're you okay with um, and that isn't offensive and that fits your preferences. I, I mean, I'm just not barraged by horrible child pornography ever. Second, 
if the question is illegal activity, I mean, revenge porn is illegal in most states. Child pornography is illegal in most states. Um, there's a difference between tracking illegal behavior online and moderating for a user experience. And I, I, just my last point is that really bothers me in the sense that, you know, what is the economic driver of all of social media? It is, in fact, the sale of our eyeballs to advertisers. And so they want an anodyne, happy experience. They want people to get on Facebook and feel good about yourself. That's why you can't say you, there's no frowny face on Facebook. There's only a happy face on Facebook. And I think that's profoundly damaging to the public discourse where if we're going to get get our news and have our political discussions in a place that really discourages uh, serious uncomfortable discussions in favor of happy feelings about your friends. Jeff, I want to pick up on something you said, because it seems to me that there is something of a tension between the argument that helped underpin CDA 230 of like, look, if, if you make us catch everything, it just isn't going to work. And the amount of resources that at least the large platforms are putting towards moderation, both for a user experience purpose and then also, you know, the internet in Europe works differently. And so it seems to me that there's arguably a tension between where a a Twitter or a Facebook or whoever, and we've been picking on Facebook, and I don't mean to, you know, but they're, they are the largest platform, where it's a little hard for them to sort of, or maybe they're somewhat having their cake and eating it too, of like, yeah, we'll moderate. We will spend a ton of money on moderation because our customers demand it. But if you hold us responsible for our moderation decisions, it all falls apart. Yeah, because they're they're not going to satisfy everyone. You're, there's no possible way that even if you take hours to research and justify every moderation decision, which is never going to happen, you're there. There are going to be some people who are upset, and I mean, the Section 230 is often decided, usually decided at the motion to dismiss stage, so that makes it a much more efficient tool to be able to get rid of claims. And there have been a lot of claims recently about deplatforming and people who claim they were censored. And even though we have a Section C2, the the courts have recently been all deciding them under C1. And I I think that there, there's just never going to be a solution that, that everyone will be satisfied with. So, I mean, I, I think that that's the key driver here. Again, horns on, devil's advocate. It seems to me that, that – for things like deplatforming, right? You don't have a right to a Facebook page, absent absent turning into some sort of public utility. And Facebook can always fall back on a First Amendment, yeah, we're publishing it and we don't want to publish you. Where the rubber would hit the road is non-First Amendment protected speech, right? Yeah. Defamation, true threat. And so it seems to me that that is, at least personally, that seems to be the area where maybe the arguments against 230 have the most weight is in the scenario, and I'm not alleging that this occurs, but it's it's a plausible scenario where a platform is like, look, we will police for defamation or true threat in some cases, but not others. That that seems to be the scenario where maybe there's an argument. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, I mean, there's arguments about a lot of potential scenarios. Yeah. Um, I've not seen any good data on, I, frankly, either way, it's really hard to prove a negative. So it's hard to say it's not happening. Uh, but Especially if you never get discovery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I mean, what what I'll say, and I think this is a bigger point that I think is driving a lot of this criticism is, I mean, I, I said I do a lot of work on cybersecurity. I'm at the Naval Academy. And by the way, these are only my views, not DOD, obviously. Um, but what I, I deal with the national security agencies a lot. And I would say the platforms until like the past year or so have been probably more secretive than the national security agency and not just NSA, but all the intelligence agencies about their practices with user content. I mean, they would have these broad policies, but you'd ask them, what do you do? And it's like this top secret SCI information. And that's changing. But I think that's been driving a lot of this because it's like, okay, we have this black box where we make these decisions and you might get thrown off and you might not. We don't have to explain it. And there's a level of arrogance there. So I, can, I mean, I definitely see the what drives some frustration. I just don't see any data showing. I mean, the, the cases where I've seen people being taken offline, I say, okay, well, yeah, there's. I mean, if I if I looked at that speech, there's a reasonable argument to why you would moderate that content. And I just want to add again, when we're talking about CDA 230, we are talking about more than social media. We're talking about things like review sites. And there can very easily be disagreement about was a bad review potentially defamatory even. And I think that that can, can be hard to decide 
at a moderation phase and you could easily have one platform or one moderator even make different decisions in the moment. Horns on. That's what we have juries for, right? Like, I mean, I guess my, if I, if I wanted to, if I wanted to be a skeptic to that argument, I guess what I'd say is going back to Adam's point of like, why does the internet get this unique grant of, you know, immunity for defamation or true threat or whatever? Yeah, there are hard questions to be asked, but we ask every other industry to, to do those questions and hold them accountable. If they don't, I mean, we can debate whether or not how effective our tort system is, but, and so, you know, what is the, What's the, you know, and I mean, we've talked about this, but it seems to me like, okay, there is the justification put forward for that. Does, does that vary? Does the justification weaken or strengthen maybe on like a platform by platform basis? Like, are there, are there elements to being a platform that should or should not impact the, you know, whether or not the CDA 230 is is justified in all cases? Well, I mean, 230 was, I mean, there's this whole theory of internet exceptionalism, that the internet is different. And that really was what well, was a strong belief at the time when Section 230 was passed, that the internet is special. It ha- should be played by different rules. Obviously, the internet has changed in both in terms of size and scope since 1996. But the issue becomes, I, th- I think, when you're looking at this, is it just a benefit for the platforms? And I mean, I'm there are a lot of 230 defenders who will say, it's not a benefit for the platforms. And I don't agree with that. Of course, it's a benefit for the platforms, but it's also not just a benefit for the companies. It is a, there are free speech benefits, and that's where it's different than immunizing a chemical company from lawsuits over um, harm that it's done to, to people, to its employees, for example. I mean, there's not sort of those additional benefits to other people that that immun- immunity in that case would provide. That, uh, but in Section 230, there are a lot of other effects of the immunity beyond just protecting the companies. And that's where it becomes really tricky when you're having this argument because it's really kind of a messy scenario. It's that, yeah, the, the companies do benefit. Absolutely. But so do uh, – I mean, I guess we benefit when we're on Twitter. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> so, sometimes I feel like I do or don't. But I mean, we do have those abilities in part because of Section 230. Yeah, yeah I think that's a very perceptive and interesting point. But I would characterize it as it's sort of like the telephone company. The telephone company also has certain legal privileges um, that regular companies don't have. They have rights of condemnation and they have the ability of of, of right of access. Um, They used to have um, uh, protected monopolies in certain situations. But in return, they had to have certain non-discriminatory obligations. I mean, to this day, you can't ask for a phone from you know the old-fashioned telephone company, and they can't deny it for you because you know they don't like your political views. And I, I think that it's always been part of the deal that you get some sort of you know these big networks that seem to play such a big role in society. They get some legal breaks because, as 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 we pointed out. In, there's a First Amendment interest in making sure that people have a platform that can take as many comments as possible. Um, at the same time, in exchange for that, I think the Internet companies have to give something. I think it's also, once again, important to point out that CDA 230 does not prevent you from going after a speaker for defamatory content. So if Jeff posts on Twitter that Brian robs banks... Brian can still sue Jeff for defamation. If Jeff uses if his Jeff real name. If Jeff uses his real right. name. There's, yeah. there's a whole other element there, <laughs> yeah. but there there is not this, like, you are now completely blocked out. And weirdly, if Twitter had some sort of drop-down menu where it's like, at Brian, drop-down, click Rob Bank, <laughs> then I could sue Twitter uh, for for their, their role in this under, under the roommate's case. But yeah, I mean, so th- that's... I mean, that, that's a that's a valid point, right? So then the question becomes, is there, should there be, whatever, like, is there a scenario where the platform, well, okay, so back for a second, that goes to sort of the, the normative justification of 230, which is Twitter's just the platform, Jeff's the user, Jeff's the one doing the defaming. Now, I guess the question is, does that, does that analysis change if Twitter then spins up one of those custom hashtag signs with a little emoji that's a, you know, Brian Rob's banks. And it's a picture of, of me, you know, in a, in a, in a mask, like, should that, should that analysis change? Is that enough? Or, you know, in, in the scenario where Twitter says, look, we're going to take, we take down people who accuse other people of robbing banks, but we like, we don't like Brian. So we're going to let this one ride. Right. In, 
it, it seems to me based on my read of 230 and, and this book sitting in front of me, they probably get to claim 230 for that, right? Because they're not actively doing anything. They're just passively letting it go. So is that does that is that just in that scenario, which doesn't actually exist? Yeah, it's inconsistent. I mean, with I mean, publisher laws existed for hundreds of years. I mean, the idea was if if you had control over the platform, whether it was your bookstore or your newsstand or your newspaper, and written material appeared in the platform over which you had control, even there's some library cases, um, then you were liable. And then, you know, they said they sort of the common law backtracked and gave the sort of lesser distributor liability. And now we have on the Internet no liability. Um, I guess it's an interesting question is, you know, and getting back to some points that were made earlier, you know, the platforms have allowed this incredible really unparalleled growth of commentary and information that would not have happened otherwise without Section 230. Is that in itself justifying the gift of liability uh, immunity? I don't know. That's sort of the open question. But I think that's the question that your, your point raises. To wrap it up, Senator Josh Hawley has introduced a bill recently that would condition CDA 230 immunity on the FTC determining that a platform's moderation algorithms were politically neutral. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, bill has, uh, the bill has not seemed to land with a lot of applause, but it, I think what it does do is it does speak to the fact that, like, as we mentioned earlier, that Congress has started there's – some, there's some unrest going on and there's some, some questions about whether or not it still makes sense in the modern era. So to wrap us up, I'm going to go around the table. If you had, like, one piece of advice for Congress when they're considering this issue, what would it be? Jennifer, let's start with you. I think it's important to take a step back and look at how CDA 230 plays out, not just for the tech giants that a lot of times people are angry at, but also for smaller platforms and even particularly mid-sized platforms, how those review sites like Yelp, how resources like Wikipedia, how various other news comment sections would be changed by such modifications. And to really not just focus on this kind of momentum about big tech and is big tech good or bad, but to look at what's going to enable us to have more competitors potentially to get to that next phase of innovation and to create an even better internet ecosystem in the future. I'm a supporter of uh, Senator Hawley's bill. I, I think that people who fear that it would interfere with the free market or the marketplace of ideas are are nuts. Um, social media has become the the public forum. We're entitled, given the great immunity the Section Two Thirty gives, we're entitled to receive back fairness in the exchange of political ideas. So my advice would just be to be slow and deliberate and thoughtful. Uh, I think that the ultimate for the FOSTA SESTA, the sex trafficking amendment, what ultimately passed was just kind of this bungle of compromises that didn't doesn't frankly does not make sense now in the law and um, the impact was pretty immediate. Uh, Craigslist, for example, even a few days before it was signed into law, removed all its personal ads because it said, you know, we can't just take the risk and the world will survive without Craigslist personal ads. But when you think about in other contexts what minor changes to this would do, it it could have much broader implications. So. What I hope that Congress will do is just be very thoughtful and careful and think about not just what are we concerned about now, but what will the internet look like after the changes. So where should people go to follow your work? You know, if you have anything else that you want to want to plug or bring people's attention to. So I'm on Twitter at, at JR Huddles, and I also regularly uh, blog for Mercatus's blog, The Bridge, um, on issues regarding internet platform liability and content moderation, uh, data privacy, and also all sorts of technology and the law issues such as transportation innovation as well. I write about 2.30 often. Last week, something in the American Conservative came out on it. I'm hoping to publish something again soon on it, and I'm running a large law review article that I think will be on the George Mason um, website um, in, in a few weeks, I hope, um, about Section 230 in the context of communications regulation. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jay Kossif. I'm Right now, I'm immersed in writing a second book, uh, which is somewhat related to Section 230 about the history of anonymous speech in the United States. 
And with that, we're going to wrap it up. I'd like to thank my guests for this fantastic discussion, and we'll see you next time. Welcome back to What's on Tap. This is Kate Delanoy. As you know, Chad and I used to host this segment together. He has moved on to the Institute for Justice, but producer Dallas has kindly agreed to join me to drink some beer and talk about what's going on at Mercatus. So, hey, Dallas. Hey. I also mainly didn't want you to have to drink alone and talk about Mercatus alone. So here I am. I appreciate that. This (laughs) would be a lot different dynamic if I was in this room by myself. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Today... Let's talk about this beer. It's not actually a beer. It's a cider. But let's talk about the cider that you brought for us. And then we can talk about what's going on at Mercatus. I got to pick it. And so I decided to rep my hometown of Cincinnati. We are drinking Rheingeist Bubbles. It's a rosé ale. So it's very crisp and I think perfect for a hot summer day. And that's why I picked it. But we'll hold our ratings to the end. And I will jump into some of the things that have been going on at Mercatus over the last month. So one of the big things that I'm really excited about is some of the great new scholars that we brought on board. Tom Honning is the former vice chairman of the FDIC, and he's joined our financial regulations team, along with Andy Vollmer, who is the former deputy general counsel at the SEC. Oh, yeah. Andy was on the Making U.S. Capital Markets More Resilient episode of Mercatus Policy Download. That's right. With Brian Knight, who is the guest host of this episode. Yeah, well, they're both here and on board, and we're looking forward to working with them. Um, We've also been continuing to update our reg data state snapshots. These are the snapshots that look at regulation across the states. So Delaware has been most recently released, and the next one coming up is California. Have you ever been to Delaware? I have. I have been to both Delaware and California. You've been to California with me for uh, conversations with Tyler. That's true. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It'll definitely be it'll be interesting to compare one of the smallest states to one of the largest states and just kind of see what the regulatory codes look like on that. So pay attention to to our research page for that. In addition to those updates, we've also been updating some of our tariff data. So you may remember from one of the last policy download episodes, we talked a little bit about the steel and aluminum tariff exclusion requests. So these are companies that are going and making the case for why their products should be excluded from the tariffs. So we now have data for another set of products. These are the this is the 301 exclusion. Um, what that really means is things are related to intellectual property innovation. Um, so all of that data is available on quantgov.org. If you're following the tariffs, trade war, you know, wondering kind of what's going on, what's the state of play, I really encourage you to go in and dig into that data because it's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, that sounds great. So what are your thoughts on this Ale, maybe not so ale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I brought it, so I'm a little bit biased. But, I mean, I'm going to give it a solid 3.75. It's obviously, I think, a little bit of false advertising with the ale part, but still something that I really enjoy. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say 3.75 as well. I like the flavors. It's uh, apple, peach, and cranberry. All good combos. All good by themselves. So, yeah, I know it's boring and I'm saying 3.75 like you are, but I think our ratings are solid. Agreed. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Dallas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.